Hello and welcome to Speak the Words, a Stormlight Archive podcast. I am Sean. And I'm Mango. And this is a podcast where I walk Mango through the Stormlight Archive series, uh, painful minute by painful minute. Uh, I have read the entirety of the Cosmere and almost the entirety of Brandon Sanderson's work. Uh, you could call me a uh, cult member. Or a brand sand stand. This week, we're recording a little bit langer, a bit langer, a little bit later, because uh, Mango got, you got your second dose of science juice. I did. It was just as rough. It was almost as rough as last time, but we're now both fully vaccinated, right? Yes, we are. We are. Nice. We are in the, uh, this is a science juice approved podcast. Uh, If anyone's listening to this in like 20 years, uh. No explanation. No, no, <laughs> no. I'm not telling you what science juice is. Figure it out for yourself. Uh, <laughs> it's much funnier that way. Uh, Fair enough. This week we are finishing part two of The Way of Kings. Uh, I said last time that I thought this was going to be a longer episode. Uh, I'll tell you, we, I actually, in my notes, came out uh, below the average num- uh, number of paid no- pages of notes that I normally have for this. For you, um, that's still a lot. It's still a lot, but, 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 uh, what is, uh, definitely, it, this is definitely the most I'm going to be reading straight from the book, uh, we've, that we've done. I just, huh. it's, it's, they're definitely the most of that that we're going to have. Um, okay. I guess I'll just enjoy the prose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I try to avoid it wherever I can, but in this part, I was just like, you know, I don't, if I try to summarize it, I'm going to butcher it. So, um, fair enough. We have we have a lot of a lot of straight from the book reading here. I try to break it up as best as I can. But uh I'm trying to think of anything else that I have to say about this episode. This is uh, uh the second to last episode before we see Shalon again, right? Because yes. she comes back in part three. We'll see Shalon again in two weeks, probably, nice. somewhere around there. Uh and are you going to yeah. butcher her name again and call her Sean instead of Shalon? Probably a couple times. <laughs> uh, Mango, what yes. happened last week? Uh, the king was dumb, and instead of mm-hmm. um, choosing Dalinar to be the High Prince of War, he chose... Um, Sadius to be the High Prince of Information. Mm-hmm. Which means he gets to investigate stuff about Dalinar. Because Elokar was dumb and listened to Sadius instead of Dalinar. And Oh, and then his um his mom. What's her name? Yes. Navani. Navani showed up and we found out that apparently Navani was flirting and kind of courting both Dalinar and his brother mm-hmm. and decided to choose the older one because the older one would become king or something. She went mm-hmm. with the older one, but now she's back flirting with Dalinar because her husband's dead. And Dalinar's <laughs> like, hmm, I shouldn't do this because uh, by all accounts, legally, she should be considered my sister now, but he still yeah. likes her. Yeah, so he's got the hops for her. That's a fun situation. Um, 
Adolin's courting another girl. <laughs> I don't even know who. He's always courting a different person in every they're episode. They're not important. <laughs> no, they're not. Though. Are they ever... Will they ever be important? Stay tuned. Actually, don't answer that. Um, yeah. And people still won't listen to um, Kaladin. Yeah. But with Kaladin, we... Um... Kaladin, we found out why Rock uh, was is a member of the bridge crews. We did. Yeah, he had said that he'd come down with his uh, with his like oh, yeah. white eyes. Okay, yeah. so he it was that he was either going to be a slave. Well, what was it? So he came he was... down with his light eyes to try and win a shard. Oh yeah. And he became Sadius's property because his light eyes was killed. Mm. Uh, but but he at first was a cook, but then he put like crab shit in Sadius's stew, so he got put <laughs> on the bridge cruise. <laughs> wasn't there something about like? Am I remembering something totally different? But wasn't he originally supposed to be a servant to like his cousin? Or yeah. So he said that in his in his culture. You are the servant of your, like, of your family. If, like, so if there's a, a bright lord in your family, then the rest of the family is their servant. Uh, yeah, and then there was a discussion. It's like, why would you want to be a servant of your family? Mm -hmm. And then Rock was like, well, wouldn't it be better to be a servant of your family than a servant of a complete stranger? Yeah. And he was like, well, fair point. Okay. Carry on. Understandable. Have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a uh, we had another chapter with Dalinar and Adolin in this uh where they had their argument. Mhm. Mm Adolin kind of went into went into Dalinar. Oh yeah. Oh. So there were some things about like I agree with Adolin because like Dalinar wasn't focusing on like the stuff going on around him because he was worried about the um visions he was having and uniting the princes and completely ignoring the fact that the princes don't like him and don't want to be united and are actively trying to like kind of resist that and but on the other hand Adolin was like calling his dad crazy because he didn't understand the visions at all and thought that they were just fake so I'm like I agree with both of them kind of uh huh uh, it's messy. And then the last chapter we covered had just been a Kaladin flashback that was essentially just more of the lead up to bad stuff happening. They got a new yeah. city lord. Oh yeah. And then there was like a game reference that I didn't yeah. understand. Yeah. But basically it was like he could be good. He could be a good leader or he could also be bad news. And yep. they're not sure yet. Do you have a guess as to which way that's going to go? Well, if it goes the way that the rest of the book goes, I'm guessing bad. Speaking of the rest of the book, we have three chapters to cover today. Finishing part two, uh, we're going to have some action. We're going to have ups. We're going to have downs. And like the end of part one, by the end of this part, somebody will make an important decision. Are we going to see more wit? I do not believe wit appears again at the end of the part. No! 
Oh! No. Wait, and he's probably not in part two either because it switches or back to three. Shalon. Or part three. Yeah. No! Probably he's not. my favorite character! Hey, you went all of part one without him. Yeah, I didn't know what I was missing. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he'll show up in a Kaladin <laughs> chapter. Oh, I hope so. Kaladin's still in the working. He camp. seems to know more than he should. Or more than he's letting on, at least. I, 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 I want to see him again. I promise you, Mango, that there is enough plot that is going to happen in the next part. That if Wit is absent, I honestly can't remember. Uh, if Wit is absent, there's stuff that will make up for it. I I promise you. Is it funny stuff? Uh, there's some funny stuff, and there's also some really crazy shit that happens in the next part. Is there depressing stuff? Yes. Of course, it's Kaladin. It's Kaladin. What am I expecting? <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's get started. I guess. Chapter 26, Stillness. The House Kulin symbol. Uh, the epigraph for this chapter reads, I am being chased. You are friends of the 17th Shard, I suspect. I believe they're still lost following a false trail I left for them. They'll be happier that way. I doubt they have any inkling what to do with me should they actually catch me. So this is when the book confirms that it's Hoyd writing the, uh, the letter. Because mm. he's talking about the people that Ishik met with in that first interlude. Mm. We start in Dalinar's POV. He's having a portion of the Way of Kings read to him and reflecting on his argument with Adolin and hearing the things that Adolin had said had really shaken him. And I'm going to read the passage from the Way of Kings here. It reads, I stood in the darkened monastery chamber, its far reaches painted with pools of black where light did not wander. I sat on the floor thinking of that dark, that unseen. I could not know for certain what was hidden in that night. I suspected there were walls, sturdy and thick, but could I know without seeing? When all was hidden, what could a man rely upon as true? Candle flames, a dozen, candle fl a dozen candles, burned themselves to death on the shelf before me. Each of my breaths made them tremble. To them, I was a behemoth, to frighten and destroy. And yet, if I strayed too close, they could destroy me. My invisible breath, the pulses of life that flowed in and out, could end them free freely, while my fingers could not do the same without being repaid in pain. I understood in the moment of stillness those candle flames were like the lives of men. So fragile, so deadly, left alone, they lit and warmed. Let run rampant, they would destroy the very things they were meant to illuminate. Embryonic bonfires, each bearing a seed of destruction so potent it could tumble cities and dash kings to their knees. In later years, my mind would return to that calm, silent evening when I had stared at rows of living lights, and I would understand. To be given loyalty is to be infused like a gemstone, to be granted the, the rightful... The frightful license to destroy not only oneself, but all within one's care. I, I really enjoy that passage in, from the Way of Kings, talking about the mm -hmm. just the power of people. Mm -hmm. Renarin enters the room, asking if there was anything he could do to help Dalinar. Dalinar says there isn't, and talks about how Yasna had said that once the Way of Kings had been studied by every king, but now it was considered blasphemy. Dalinar says that High Prince Adal Aladar refused the alliance along with Royoan. He asks Renarin who they should approach next. Renarin says that Adolin thinks they should be more worried about Sadius, and Dalinar says that Adolin is right to worry. He says that moving against Sadius would undermine Alethkar as a nation, and for that reason, Sadius wouldn't move against them. Just then, a horn calls, signaling a chasm fiend sighting. One of Dalinar's officers, Taleb, 
comes in and says that they have the best chance to get it to get to it of all the high princes. Thalinar thought this was just what they needed to quell the rumors in camp and boost troop morale. He sends for Adolin and tells the officers to gather the troops. They would march. He was still considering the visions as he put on his armor, but he pushed them away. It was time to be the Blackthorn. And uh, the book talks about like the process of putting on shard plate, and I'm going to read it because it's interesting. He stepped into the, into the sabatons, and the straps tightened of their own accord, fitting around his boots. The greaves came next, going over his legs and knees, locking on to the sabatons. Shard plate wasn't like ordinary armor. There was no mesh of steel, mail, and no leather straps at the joints. Shard plate seams were made of smaller plates, interlocking, overlapping, incredibly intricate, leaving no vulnerable gaps. There was very little rubbing or chafing. Each piece fit perfectly together, as if it had been crafted specifically for Dalinar. One always puts the armor on from the feet upward. Shard plate was extremely heavy. Without the enhanced strength it provided, no man would be able to fight in it. Dalinar stood still as the armor bearers affixed uh, the cuirasses over his thighs and locked them to the culet and folds across his waist and lower back. A skirt made of small interlocking plates came next, reaching down to just above his knees. So, as they're, like, putting the armor on, it is automatically joining together. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of Iron Man-y, in a way. Is kind of how I imagine it slightly. Mm-hmm. Taleb asks Dalinar if he'd reconsidered using man-carried bridges. Dalinar says that he refuses to use them for the assault runs. But he tells Taleb that they may, cr- may train one bridge crew for use on the trip to the Chasm Fiend. He won't risk people's lives like on the assaults, but maybe they could use them on the actual journey. Dalinar finishes putting on his shard plate and feels the thrill, capital T, build inside him. He meets the soldiers outside and Adolin approaches. The two have a little moment where Adolin apologizes for the ways he talked to Dalinar, but not for the things that he said. Dalinar accepts the apology and notices Malasha watching from a distance, who is the girl that Adolin is courting, and she apparently wanted to go with Adolin into battle, and he'd been like, fuck no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, questionable. They're about to start marching when Sadius shows up, demanding to be let into the war camp for his investigation. Aiden looks pissed, and Dalinar lets Sadius in. I mean, they're leaving anyway, so... Yeah. Well, Dalinar and Adolin move to the front of the army, where their Rishadiums wait, which are their special horses, and mm-hmm. are about to start marching when Sadius walks up. Sadius uh. says that the king's investigation cannot wait, so he'll have to accompany Dalinar's army on the plateau run so he can question some of them. Just put him in the front. Get him killed. <laughs> Wipe your hands of this. Wipe your hands of this. That's not very Dalinar. <laughs> Is it very Adolin, though? I mean, good question. <laughs> they begin their long march, Sadius pulling soldiers out of line uh, while they walked to question them, and Dalinar preparing himself for battle. Uh, we get a little explanation of what Dalinar's bridges are because they're different from Sadius's, but he essentially uses giant siege towers that are pulled by chulls, which are the giant, like, crab creatures. And when they get Mm -hmm. to a chasm, they'd unhook the tower, and the uh, soldiers would push it to the edge. Then they would use a crank to lower a bridge for people to cross. Sadius approaches Dalinar while they're crossing and starts goading him. He says that in the old days, if someone upset Dalinar, it would end with a head or two rolling across stones. Dalinar says he's killed people who didn't deserve it, and Sadius asks if uh, Dalinar still feels the thrill. And I'm going to read from the book here for a moment. 
Men didn't often speak of the thrill, the joy and lust for battle. It was a private thing. I feel each of the things you mentioned, Sadius, Dalinar said, eyes forward, but I don't always let them out. A man's emotions are what define him, and control is the hallmark of true strength. To lack feeling is to be dead, but to act on every feeling is to be a child. And then uh, Sadius says, That has the stink of a quote about it, Dalinar, from Gavilar's Little Book of Virtues, I assume. Uh, Dalinar confirms that, and Sadius says, Doesn't it bother you at all that the Radiance betrayed us? Legends. The Recreance is an event so old, it might as well be in the Shadow Days. What did the Radiance really do? Why did they do it? We don't know. We know enough, Sadius said. They used elaborate tricks to imitate great powers and pretend a holy calling. When their deceptions were discovered, they fled. Dalinar says that the powers were not lies, they were real. Oh, Sadius said, amused, you know this? Didn't you just say the event was so old it might as well have been in the Shadow Days? If the Radiance had such marvelous powers, why can nobody reproduce them? Where did those incredible skills go? I don't know, Dalinar said softly. Perhaps we're just not worthy of them any longer. Where did their marvelous powers go, Mango? They still have them. Do they? Maybe. Or, people just don't know how to use them. Now. Dalinar doesn't seem to think people are worthy of them. I mean, if they're fighting wars just for the sake of money, maybe they're not. Maybe. Dalinar tries to convince Sadius to use his position as High Prince of Information to help unify the High Princes, and Sadius says that uh, that, that, would really, that what would really help Alethkar is if Dalinar started acting like a man again. He says that the Way of Kings ruined Gavilar and is ruining Dalinar now, and Dalinar gets all pissed off and rides away. Uh, and he remembers one of his memories of Gavilar, something that Gavilar had once said. He said, Things are different now, Dalinar. I see now in ways I never did before. I wish I could show you what I mean. And then three days later, he had died. Mm -hmm. We cut to the battle about to commence. Dalinar and Adolin are positioned behind one of the siege bridges with the rest of their men. Dalinar starts to summon Oathbringer as he asks Adolin what he thinks of the way they fight. Adolin asks what the point of being a shardbearer is if they can't lead the charge. And I'm going to read from the book here. Oathbringer's familiar weight settled into his hand. Go, Dalinar said, snapping his eyes open. He slammed his visor down as Adolin did the same, stormlight rising from the sides as the helm sealed shut and became translucent. The two of them burst out from behind the massive bridge, one shardbearer on each side, a figure of blue and another of slate gray. The energy of the armor pulsed through Dalinar as he dashed across the stone ground, arms pumping in rhythm with his steps. The wave of arrows came immediately, loosed from the Parshendi kneeling on the other side of the chasm. Dalinar flung his arm up in front of his eye slit as arrows sprayed across him, scraping metal, some shafts snapping. It felt like running against a hailstorm. Adolin bellowed a war cry from the right, voice muffled by his helm. As they approached the chasm lip, Dalinar lowered his arm despite the arrows. He needed to be able to judge his approach. The gulf was mere feet away, his plate giving him a surge of strength as he reached the edge of the chasm, then leaped. For a moment, he soared above the inky chasm, cape flapping, arrows filling the air around him. He was reminded of the flying radiant from his vision, but this was nothing so mystical, just a standard shard plate assisted jump. Dalinar cleared the chasm and crashed back to the ground on the other side, sweeping his blade down it and across to slay three Parshendi with a single blow. Their eyes burned black and smoke rose as they collapsed. He swung again, bits of armor and weapons sprayed into the air where arrows had once flown, sheared free by his blade. 
As always, it sliced apart anything inanimate, but blurred when it touched flesh, as if turning to mist. Uh, Adolin landed a short distance away from Dalinar, and they start clearing out an area of Parshendi. So, right here, we get the major difference between the way that Dalinar and Sadius fight. Mm-hmm. Dal- Sadius sends the bridge crews running down so they can get the bridges down and then send cavalry across. Dalinar and Adolin jump across the chasm and just start slaughtering Parshendi to clear a landing zone. Huh. So they're uh, trying to prevent their bridgemen from dying and being having to be replaced. Well, they don't have bridgemen. They're trying to prevent their soldiers from having oh. a difficult landing. Like, it's not even just protecting people from having to make a bridge landing. They could still push the bridges forward and drop them and send soldiers in first, but they're the first ones across to clear a landing zone. Huh. Uh, they talk about the Parshendi a little bit here, finally. Finally. Uh, they say that the Parshendi were singing, many of them wearing beards that glowed with small uncut gemstones. Parshendi always sang as they fought, the, sang- the, the song changing as they would switch between weapons. Huh. The Parshendi also would get enraged when you fuck with their dead. So Dalinar is like kicking the corpses around to goad them into attacking him. Huh. I'm going to read from the book again here. The thrill consumed Dalinar, giving him strength, focus, and power. The glory of the battle grew grand. He'd stayed away from this for too long. He saw with clarity now. They did need to push harder. Assault more plateaus. Win the gem hearts. Dalinar was the Blackthorn. He was a natural force, never to be halted. He was death itself. He he felt a sudden stab of powerful revulsion, a sickness so strong that it made him gasp. He slipped partially on a patch of blood, but partially because his knees grew suddenly weak. The corpses before him suddenly seemed a horrifying sight. Eyes burned out like spent coals, bodies limp and broken, bones shattered where Adolin had punched them. Heads cracked open, blood and brains and entrails spilled around them. Such bit butchery, such death. The thrill vanished. How could a man enjoy this? The Parshendi surged toward him. Adolin was there in a heartbeat, attacking with more skill than any other man Adalinar had known. The lad was a genius with the blade, an artist with paint of only one shade. He struck expertly, forcing the Parshendi back. Dalinar shook his head, recovering his stance. He forced himself to resume fighting, and as the thrill began to rise again, Dalinar hesitantly embraced it. The odd sickness faded, and his battle reflexes took control. He spun into the Parshendi advance, sweeping out with his blade in broad, aggressive strokes. He needed this victory. For himself, for Adolin, and for his men. Why had he been so horrified? The Parshendi had murdered Gavilar. It was right to kill them. He was a soldier. Fighting was what he did, and he did it well. The Parshendi advance unit broke before his assault, scattering back toward a larger mass of their troops, who were forming ranks in haste. Dalinar stepped back and found himself looking down at the corpses around him, with their blackened eyes, smoke still curled from a few. The sick feeling returned. Life ended so quickly. The Shardbearer was destruction incarnate, the most powerful force on a battlefield. Once those weapons meant protecting, a voice inside of him whispered, The three bridges crashed to the ground a few feet away, and the cavalry charged across a moment later. A few windspread danced past in the air, nearly invisible. Adolin called for his horse, but Dalinar just stood, looking down at the dead. Parshendi blood was orange, and it smelled like mold, 
Yet their faces, marbled black or white and red, looked so human. A parchment nurse had practically raised Dalinar. Life before death. What was that voice? Dalinar looks back at Sadius, who's watching him with disgust at the idea of Dalinar leading his army at the front. Uh, Gallant charges across the bridge alongside a line of soldiers who cheered for the Rishadium. He slowed near Dalinar, who grabbed the reins. Right now he was needed. His men were dying, and this was not a time for regret or second-guessing. He jumped into the saddle, then Shardblade raised high. He charged into battle to kill for his men. That was not what the Radiants had fought for, but at least it was something. We cut to the end of the battle, and they've won. Dalinar walked away as Adolin claimed the gem heart, and he wondered what was happening to him. And I'm going to read from the end of the chapter. He froze, noticing a group of Parshendi on a nearby plateau. His scouts watched them warily. It was the army that Dalinar's people had driven off. Though they'd killed a lot of Parshendi today, the vast majority had still escaped, retreating when they realized the battle was lost to them. That was one of the reasons the war was lasting so long. The Parshendi understood strategic retreat. This army stood in ranks, grouped in war pairs. A commanding figure stood at their head. A large Parshendi in glittering armor. Shard plate. Even at a distance, it was easy to tell the difference between it and something more mundane. That Shardbearer hadn't been here during the battle itself. Why come now? Had he arrived too late? The armored figure and the rest of the Parshendi turned and left, leaping across the chasm behind them and fleeing back toward their unseen haven at the center of the plains. And that's the end of chapter 26. Um, we kind of saw a hint of the Blackthorn at the beginning of the chapter, when he fights the Chasm Fiend, but this is when you really see the Blackthorn. Mm. And we get a little more of a hint about the thrill. What do you think the thrill is? It's this instinct that men have kind of developed over time that makes them love to kill. They love battle, they love killing things, and something in Dalinar is making him resist the feeling. Mm -hmm. Something pushes it away. And so if he wants to be successful in battle, he has to find something to fight for. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me a little bit of Nier, because they, in Nier, there's this thing of, about the androids where they've literally been given, like, in their programming, killing and battle is, like, equal to any sort of pleasure for them. So, like, they enjoy killing things and. I don't know. It just reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the Parshendi singing during their battles? <sighs> Maybe they're... It might be like a religious thing. Maybe they sing mm-hmm. praises to a religious deity mm-hmm. and that helps them in battle. And it Mm -hmm. would also kind of make sense why they hate people messing with their um, dead, because they probably Mm -hmm. respect the dead a lot and don't want any dishonor brought to their dead. Yes. 
all that seems uh seems like it it could be true um I, uh, uh, you heard something that I have been saying for a long time, but I believe this is the first time it has actually been said in the book. Mm hmm Life before death. And a voice whispered it to Dalinar in his head. Let me guess, it's probably the voice that's been giving him these weird visions during high storms. Possibly. That would make sense? It would. So that's probably it. Life Unless you're death. leading me on. No, I just I I was really excited when I saw that Life Before Death made an actual appearance in book finally. Uh Let me guess, Life like, Before Ooh. Death. What what's the quote again? I hear you say it all the time. What Life Before Death, Strength Before Weakness, weakness Journey, journey before, before Destination. destination. Yes. Is that a quote from The Way of Kings? Uh it might be. You saying that means that it is, so. It might be. I, I can't remember if it's said in the Wave Kings. I, there's a lot of little details that I can't fully remember. Oh, well then. Never mind. Um. Anyways, chapter 27 is titled Chasm Duty. It has Kaladin's symbol. Oh, no. If anything I've said makes a glimmer of sense to you, I trust that you'll call them off. Or maybe you could astound me and ask them to do something productive for once. Oh, the chapter no. starts with Kaladin going to the apothecary to sell the knob weed that he, Teft, and Rock had gathered. This goes on for a while. I'm going to summarize it because it's not super important. Essentially what happens here is that the apothecary tries to tell Kaladin that the sap he gathered is useless and pays him almost... He's like, I'll pay you like nothing for it, but I'll give you something. And what Kaladin realize, realizes and what the apothecary uh, confirms is that the apothecaries had all come together and were deciding to sell this sap for a lot of money, but weren't telling the army that it was as easy to gather as Kaladin had found it was. They were trying to be like, oh, you can't find it here on the Shattered Plains, and when you do it, you only get like a single drop. But Kaladin found a ton on the plains, and he was getting multiple drops per weed. So... Mm -hmm. He realizes all this, and essentially he makes a deal with the apothecary where Kaladin will gather the weeds for him, and the apothecary will sell, uh, will buy them for half of what he sells them for. And this way, if anybody realizes what's going on, then he can throw Kaladin under the bus. Kaladin leaves, and Syl says she can't decide if what he's doing is dishonest or not, and he says that it's just business. Kaladin says that he doesn't like charging for medical care because of his father, and thinks about how he's a little too much like his father. He was in the perfect position to get away, but he couldn't bring himself to leave the others. He had to protect them for Tien and for his own sanity. Later, Gaz tells Kaladin that Bridge 4 is on chasm duty. They argue for a moment about whether the bridgeman Kaladin had saved would survive before Kaladin walks off. Chasm duty is when the bridgemen have to climb down a rope ladder into the chasms to search yep. the corpses for valuables. Yep. Mm. And uh, they describe the bottom of the chasms here, and I'm going to read it uh, from the book. They say that the chasm was shallow here, only about 50 feet down, but that was enough to take him into a different world. A world where the only natural light came from the rift high in the sky. A world that stayed damp on even the hottest days, a drowned landscape of moss, fungus, and hardy plants that survived in even dim light. 
The chasms were wider at the bottom, perhaps a result of high storms. They caused enormous floods to crash through the chasms. To be caught in a chasm during a high storm was death. A sediment of hardened creme smoothed the pathway on the floors of the chasm, though it rose and fell with the varying erosion of the underlying rock. In some few places, the distance from the chasm floor to the edge of the plateau was only about 40 feet. In most places, however, it was closer to 100 or more. Uh, Kaladin jumps down into the, into the chasm, falling a few feet and landing with a splash in a puddle of rainwater. After lighting a torch, he holds it high, peering along the rift. The, the sides were slick with the dark green moss and several thin vines that he didn't recognize trailed down from intermediate ledges above. Bits of bone, wood, and torn cloth lay strewn about or wedged into clefts. So I always think about it like like if you like it's underwater, but there's no water. Mm. Like literally, it looks like the seafloor down there, and I think that's so cool. That is really cool. Uh, bridge four walks through the chasms, collecting items from the corpses. Rock and Teft talk about a group of bridgemen that had supposedly been eaten by chasm fiends during chasm duty. Teft also notes that if you got stuck down here during a high storm, the water would form enormous waves in the confined space and you'd be fucked. Rock says that at least Teft would get a much-needed bath, and he says that he sometimes he thinks getting taken out by the Barshendi would be better than smelling an entire bridge crew. <laughs> the rest of the bridgemen followed behind them, a few seemingly wanting to listen in without being obvious. Teft says that he, the chasm smell worse than a horn eater's boot, and Rock says that if they were at the peaks, they would have to duel over that slight. It would involve lots of mud beer and singing, and whoever could still sing after the most drinks is the winner. Plus, everyone will be so drunk, they'll forget about what the argument was. Kaladin takes a chance to drag one of the bridgemen into the conversation, Dunny. Rock asks Dunny what his name means, and the boy says that it doesn't have a meaning. Rock says that all names should have meaning, and that his is the description of a very special rock that his father had found the day before he was born. He says that on the peaks, everyone's name is a poem. Rock says that most insults on the peaks are in the form of a poem as well, and Dunny tries when he says, Hey, you big buffoon, you smell like a wet hog, so go out by the moon and jump yourself in the bog. <laughs> Rock laughed, and Kaladin said that it sounds like a song, and Dunny's like, yeah, I came up with it, and I said it, I said it to a song while I was coming up with it, and Rock is like, oh, you sing? And Dunny's like, a little bit, and Rock goes, sing. <laughs> sing for the me, mortal. <laughs> Dunny starts to sing, and Rock hums along in the background, and when they were finished, Teft clapped. <laughs> Kaladin looked at the other bridgemen, finding Scars scowling while Moash and Sigzel wouldn't even look at him. Rock said he thought that all lowlanders were tone-deaf until hearing Dunny sing. They continued through the chasms, Dunny's shyness fading as he laughed and talked with Rock and Teft. Kaladin could see Yake, Mapes, Maps, and a couple others being drawn towards the conversation. The bridgemen found a large group of dead soldiers and silently took their possessions. Um, and now I'm going to read from the book for a while. Um, so Kaladin notices a spear on the book and he picks it up. Let me guess it gets depressing. <clears throat> um, it, it gets something. He rubbed <sighs> his finger along the smooth wood. He could tell from the heft, balance, and sanding that it was a good weapon. Sturdy, well-made, well-kept. He closed his eyes, remembering days as a boy holding a quarterstaff. Words spoken by Tux years ago returned to him. Words spoken on that bright summer day when he'd first held a weapon in Amaram's army. The first step is to care, Tux's voice seemed to whisper. Some talk about being emotionless in battle. 
Well, I suppose it's important to keep your head, but I hate that feeling of killing while calm and cold. I've seen that those who care fight harder, longer, and better than those who don't. It's the difference between mercenaries and real soldiers. It's the difference between fighting to defend your homeland and fighting on foreign soil. It's good to care when you fight, so long as you don't let it consume you. Don't try to stop yourself from feeling. You'll hate who you become. The spear quivered in Kaladin's fingers as if begging him to swing it, spin it, dance with it. What are you planning to do, Lord Ling? A voice called. Going to ram that spear into your own gut? Kaladin glanced up at the speaker. Moash, still one of Kaladin's biggest distractors, stood near the line of corpses. How had he known to call Kaladin Lordling? Had he been talking to Gaz? He claims he's a deserter, Moash said to Narm, the man working next to him. Says he was some important soldier, a squad leader or the like. But Gaz says that's all stupid boasting. They wouldn't send a man to the bridges if he actually knew how to fight. Kaladin lowered the spear. Moash smirked, turning back to his work. Others, however, had now noticed Kaladin. Look at him, Sigzel said. Oh, bridge leader, you think that you're grand? That you're better than us? You think pretending that we're your own personal troop of soldiers will change anything? Leave him alone, Dre, he said. He shoved Sigzel as he passed. At least he tries. Earless Jack snorted, pulling a boot free from a dead foot. He cares about looking important. Even if he was in the army, I'll bet he spent his days cleaning out latrines. It appeared that there was something that would pull the bridgemen out of their silent stupors. Loathing for Kaladin. Others began talking, calling jibes. His fault we're down here. Wants to run us ragged during our only free time, just so he can feel important. Sent us to carry rocks to show us he could shove us around. Bet he's never held a spear in his life. Kaladin closed his eyes, listening to their score and rubbing his fingers on the wood. Never held a spear in his life. Maybe if he'd never picked up that first spear, none of this would have happened. He felt the smooth wood, slick with rainwater, memories jumbling in his head. Training to forget, training to get vengeance, training to learn and make sense of what had happened. Without thinking about it, he snapped the spear up under his arm into guard position. Point down. Water droplets from its length sprayed across his back. Moash cut off in the middle of another jibe. The bridgeman sputtered to a stop. The chasm became quiet. And Kaladin was in another place. He was listening to Tux chide him. He was listening to Tien laugh. He was hearing his mother tease him in her clever, witty way. He was on the battlefield surrounded by enemies but ringed by friends. He was listening to his father tell him with a sneer in his voice that spears were only for killing. You could not kill to protect. He was alone in a chasm deep beneath the earth, holding the spear of a fallen man, fingers gripping the wet wood, a faint dripping coming from somewhere distant. Strength surged through him as he spun the spear up into an advanced kata. His body moved of its own accord, going through the forms he'd trained in so frequently. The spear danced in his fingers, comfortable, an extension of himself. He spun with it, swinging it around and around, across his neck, over his arm, in and out of jabs and swings. Though it had been months since he'd even held a weapon, his muscles knew what to do. It was as if the spear itself knew what to do. Tension melted away, frustration melted away, and his body sighed in contentment, even as he worked it furiously. This was familiar. This was welcome. This was what it had been created to do. Men had always told Kaladin that he fought like nobody else. He'd felt it on the first day he'd picked up a quarterstaff. Though Tux's advice had helped him refine and channel what he could do, Kaladin had cared when he fought. He'd never fought empty or cold. He fought to keep his men alive. Of all the recruits in his cohort, he had learned the quickest. How to hold the spear, how to stand to spar. He'd done it almost without instruction. That had shocked Tux. 
But why could he? Why could it have? Why should it have? You were not shocked when a child knew how to breathe. You were not shocked when a sky eel took flight from the for the first time. You should not be shocked when you hand Kaladin Stormblessed a spear and he knows how to use it. Kaladin spun through the last motions of the kata. Chasm forgotten, Bridgman forgotten, fatigue forgotten. For a moment, it was just him. Him and the wind. He fought with her, and she laughed. He snapped the spear back into place, holding the haft at the one-quarter position, spearhead down, bottom of the haft tucked underneath his arm, and rising back behind his head. He breathed in deeply, shivering. Oh, how I've missed that. He noticed that the bridgemen were standing stunned. Moaj had dropped a handful of spheres in shock. Kaladin yelled at them to get back to work and ran over to Rock and Teft. Kaladin, lad, Teft said reverently. That was... It was meaningless, Kaladin said. Just a kata, meant to work the muscles and make you practice the basic jabs, thrusts, and sweeps. It's a lot showier than it is useful. But... No, really, Kaladin said. Can you imagine a man swinging a spear around his neck like that in combat? He'd be gutted in a second. Lad, Teft said, I've seen katas before, but never one like that. The way you moved, the speed, the grace, and there was some sort of spren zipping around you, between your sweeps glowing with a pale light. It was beautiful. Rock started. You could see that? Sure, Teft said. Never seen a spren like that. Ask the other men. I saw a few of them pointing. Kaladin glanced at his shoulder, frowning at Syl. She sat primly, legs crossed, and hands folded atop her knee, pointedly not looking at him. It was nothing, Kaladin repeated. Oh, um, that's a good way to get people to shut up. <laughs> I bet you can't even fight does, like, the coolest drill ever. Yeah. Like, man. Rock says that Kaladin should challenge a shard bear and become a bright lord, and Kaladin says that he's already tried that. Teft tries to ask more questions, but Kaladin has them, le has him them lead him to a pile of Parshendi bodies they'd found. He says they can take their armor, but Rock is like, no, you can't take their armor. So Kaladin inspects the body, and he discovers why. The armor grows from them. Oh. Teft says that he worked for the camp for a few years before becoming a bridgeman. That, but he still won't tell them how he became one. He says that the Parshendi grow carapaces. Kaladin says that Parshmen don't grow armor, and Teft says the Parshendi are different. Bigger, stronger, and they can jump chasms. So yeah, the, the Parshendi's armor grows from them. They're essentially crab shells. Hmm. They gather the Parshendi's possessions and find a knife with a depiction of one of the heralds. Either Jezeriza or Nalan, which surprises them. The Parshendi aren't supposed to have culture. That's what they tell you. That yes. just makes me think, are Parshendi just humans that evolved to have resistance to the high storms the way all the creatures in the land have, but other humans, like didn't evolve that way because they just run inside rather than trying to resist it. That's an interesting idea. That might just be me thinking too hard, but like... You should never think that you are thinking too hard about the Parshendi. Um, okay. If the Parshendi were boring, I would not read these books. <laughs> uh, okay. No, because 
this book establishes them to kind of just be the other um mm-hmm. in a way that i think would actually be really harmful if mm-hmm. they were not eventually explored in a way that made them probably the most fascinating part of the series so um never think okay. that you're thinking too hard about the parshendi okay okay good it's like some of my favorite series ever are the ones that you start out thinking oh yeah they're just weird they don't have culture they're just they're to oppose us because <laughs> the universe hates us or something but then they actually explore like no these people have culture they're alive even like robots like my favorite series one of my favorite series is near and they just explore like oh yeah these robots evolve to have culture they're not just blank slates like they can develop sentience too so anytime a series like just explores like people going from seeing other cultures as just other and not really caring about them to actually learning about them i find it very interesting they started back when kaladin was able to draw uh drehi and torfin into a small conversation as well Rock and Kaladin are the last ones to climb out of the chasm, and Rock says that he thinks the Bridgman will fall in line in the next few weeks. Kaladin says they don't have weeks and that he has an idea, but they need to go to the camp market. Kaladin says that Rock is his secret weapon. Later, just as the first moon was rising, Kaladin and Rock returned to Bridgefor's barracks where Teft and Dunny had built a small fire pit. Kaladin and Rock had bought an old cauldron and were unpacking supplies as well. Kaladin sent Dunny for water, and Hobbard limped out of the barracks, asking Kaladin what he was up to. Kaladin told Hobbard to sit, and the man did so. His loyalty to Kaladin for saving him had only grown stronger over time. Rock began to cook. Rock and Dunny began to sing as Teft clapped along. People moved around in the barracks, and finally Scar stepped out, and I'm going to read the end of the chapter here. Kaladin held the bowl towards Scar, as steam curled from the surface of the brownish liquid. Will you join us? Kaladin asked. Please? Scar looked at him, then turned then back down at the stew. He laughed, taking the stew. I'd join the night, wa- the night Watcher herself around a fire if there was stew involved. Be careful, Teft said. That's Horneater stew. Might be snail shells or crab claws floating in it. There is not, Rock barked. It's unfortunate that you have unrefined lowlander tastes, but I prepare the food such as I am ordered by our dear bridge leader. Kaladin smiled, letting out a deep breath as Scar sat down. Others trailed out after him, taking bowls, sitting. Some stared into the fire, not saying much, but others began to laugh and sing. At one point, Gaz walked past, eyeing them with a single eye, as if trying to decide if they were breaking any camp regulations. They weren't. Kaladin had checked. Kaladin dipped out a bowl of stew and held it toward Gaz. (laughs) The bridge sergeant snorted in derision and walked away. Can't expect too many miracles in one night, Kaladin thought with a sigh, settling back down and trying the stew. It was quite good. He smiled, joining in the next verse of Dunny's song. The next morning, when Kaladin called for the bridgemen to rise, three quarters of them piled out of the barrack. Everyone but the loudest complainers, Moash, Sigzil, Narm, and a couple others, the ones who came to his call looked surprisingly refreshed, despite the long evening spent singing and eating. When he ordered them to join him in practice carrying the bridge, almost all of those who had risen joined him. Not everyone, but enough. He had a feeling that Moash and the others would give in before too long. They'd eaten his stew. Nobody had turned that down. And now that he had so many, the others would feel foolish not joining in. Bridge 4 was his. 
Now we had to keep them alive long enough for that to mean something. And like I said, this episode is going to have some really high highs, and I think this is a massive high for Kaladin. For him, yeah. People are much more likely to be happy and listen to you when they've been fed. And finding a way that you can feed the people that aren't going to be offered food mm -hmm. otherwise is also very smart. Because there are the those that are still recovering that... Yes. aren't allowed to get rations or whatever. I think Kaladin's so. plot in this book, like his, or his character arc in this book, so far, right, we'll talk about so far, is really, really good in the way that it's broken into the parts. Like, part one is all about him kind of coming back from the edge. Well, yeah, Being I mean, depressed. his depression is still there. Well, it's... Well, yeah, but it's it's more of like... Yeah. Things just seem to be getting worse for him. And then eventually at the end, he's like, wait, but I don't want... Like, he realizes that it's better not to just have it all come to an end. Like, he can do something. And then in part two, he's like, making an effort to... And I think you see real progress in that part one is all about Kaladin coming back from the edge. And in this part, we start, like, literally, I believe his first chapter is him trying for the first time. And at the end of the at the end of the part, we see him succeed. He he has bridge four now. Um, so it might be mm -hmm. kind of simplistic storytelling a little bit. Like, it's very chartable. But I still think that it's, it's really good. That's n being mm -hmm. able to be tracked in a like simple way it doesn't yeah, mean I that agree. the way it's done is bad like being simple isn't a bad thing when it's I done I told right. you this episode was going to have really high highs and I also told you that it was going to have some low lows yeah. chapter 28 decision <sighs> it's the house colin symbol and the final epigraph Great. of this chap of this part reads, Great. For I have never been dedicated to a more important purpose, and the very pillars of the sky will shake with the results of our war here. I ask again, support me. Do not stand aside and let disaster consume more lives. I've never begged you for something before, old friend. I do so now. We'll go back over the letter at the end of this episode. Uh, we start in Adolin's POV. Okay. Dalinar and Adolin are inspecting Taleb's prototype hand-carried bridge, and they're testing to see if they could move the siege towers over it, but it doesn't hold. It breaks. Taleb goes off to work on another prototype, mm. and Dalinar looks over to workers digging a latrine ditch. He asks Adolin why there are no shard plate-like suits for workers. He asks why the Radiants only fashioned weapons, why they didn't make more productive tools. Dalinar wonders if that's the final condemnation of them. For all their claims, they never gave their plate or its secrets to the common people. Dalinar and Adolin continued with their inspections. Eventually, Dalinar asked if Adolin felt the thrill in combat. Adolin asks if anyone doesn't, and Dalinar said nothing more, and they continued on their way. Adolin watches the families of the soldiers moving around the camp. Since the war camps weren't attacked anymore, Dalinar had allowed them to come. Dalinar wonders if the Shattered Plains have now become a de facto Alethi princedom, if people will ever leave. He wonders what will happen if they continue to capture gemstones at the rate they are. What will that do to the economy? He says that Adolin will have to be ready to consider these questions. And Adolin's like, hey, what do you mean by that? And Dalinar doesn't say anything. <laughs> Inflation <Yeah. laughs> is not uh, They inspect the soldiers. Yes? 
capturing gems well actually to be fair when some of your money just stops being valuable because of it not having stormlight in it anymore i guess you wouldn't have to worry about it inflation as much unless you just re-infuse it, it still with has value it's like, just people don't trust it as much it's still worth as much. It's just because people That's wonder, weird. like, is it a bad gemstone inside? Like, it's the idea of counterfeit. Is that if a, if a sphere can't hold mm. uh, light, stormlight, then it's a counterfeit. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to the the spheres that Kaladin was holding? Did he absorb the stormlight? I don't know, light? man. You know what? Let's talk about... We'll talk about that maybe more a little bit in part three or part four or part five. Maybe in one of the other parts we'll talk about that. But da Kaladin's gone for the rest of the part. We're done with him. Okay, but did he took someone's spheres and they never bring it up again. You would think that they would bring that up again pretty quickly. Well... But, we still got like 700 pages left in the book, so, you Okay, know. well. <laughs> Hold on to that question. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, boy. Part three. Uh, <laughs> tells Adolin, oh, so first of all, they inspect soldiers and they talk about the Parshendi tactics some more. And they talk about that the Parshendi always fight in pairs and that the pairs move with inexplicable coordination. Oh... That just makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. Thalinar tells Adolin to inspect the men and afterwards tells him that uh, he did it well. Thalinar had the men ask, or he had the men that Sadius had questioned gathered and asked them what the High Prince had asked them about. And they're immediately like, hey boss, we didn't say shit. He's a fucking snake. And Dalinar's like, hey, you're talking about a High Prince. Treat him with respect. And they tell Dalinar that he was asking them all about their duties as they were grooms in charge of the horses during, or the king's horse specifically, during the chasm feed hunt. And they essentially say that they didn't say anything to incriminate Dalinar, and in his head he's like, oh, if you guys spoke like this to Sadius, it would have been so incriminating. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Adolin and Dalinar walk away, and Dalinar tells an ardent to interview the men individually. Thalinar leads Adolin off on another inspection, and Adolin's like, hey, look, what's going on? Thalinar says that Adolin has helped him come to a decision, and Adolin asks him what it's about. Before Dalinar can say anything else, a runner from High Prince Thanadol arrives to tell Dalinar that their meeting is cancelled. Thanadol would be happy to meet with Dalinar during one of the king's feasts in public. The runner says that Thanadol already knows the purpose of the meeting and has no interest in a joint plateau assault. Dalinar says that Thanadol had been the last High Prince besides Sadius to ask. Dalinar says that he's failed, that he can't get them to work together. Elicar was right. He sends Adolin on to continue the inspections while he does something else. Adolin asks if Dalinar will tell him what this is all about, and Dalinar says very soon. We cut to Dalinar's POV. And Dalinar considers his decision, the decision that is... What this chapter is named after, and that decision is, was it time to step aside and let his son take his place? No. He sends one, he sends one of his aides for his warhammer and goes over to the men digging the latrine ditch. He tells the workers to leave, lifted the warhammer, and started to swing. With shard plate, he did the work of 20 men. He wondered why there were no shards for ordinary men. The work helped him think. 
He was losing his thirst for battle. The thrill was part of what drove the Alethi as a people. Now, thinking about killing was starting to sicken him. He couldn't go into battle like this. He couldn't lead like this. Soldiers and workers gathered as he smashed away at the stones. He had more important things to do, but it felt good to dis directly help. Thalinard thought that somebody had to start, had to be the model. That was his main reason to not abdicate. He didn't understand why this was happening to him. He wasn't a philosopher, he was a soldier. In his youth, he'd been a tyrant and a warmonger. Dalinar continued working until he heard a woman's voice behind him. Wouldn't the blade be more efficient? Navani stood beside the ditch, arms folded. She asks him to explain his process, and he does. He says he slices up the rocks with the shard blade, and then uses the hammer to break them up so that they can be lifted out of the ditch. She asks if he's going to apologize for missing their appointment, and Dalinar freezes. He'd completely forgotten. He apologizes, and Navani says that she'll find a way for him to make it up to her. Then, tells him that his span read to Yasna is flashing. Dalinar decides that speaking with Yasna is more important than the ditch and prepares to go answer the span read. Navani asks to come along, as it's been months since she's spoken with her daughter, and Dalinar agrees the, they start back to his bunker. I'm going to read from the book here for a bit. I don't like the concept of, oh, I'll find some way for you to make it up to me. <laughs> that makes me uncomfy, knowing what I know. Well, they have a little conversation, and the conversation goes, You're a kind man, Dalinar Kulin, Navani said, that same sly smile on her lips as she sat back in the cushioned chair. She's on a palanquin. I'm afraid that I'm compelled to find you fascinating. My sense of honor makes me easy to manipulate, Dalinar said, eyes forward. Dealing with her was not something he needed right now. I know it does. No need to toy with me, Navani. She laughed softly. I'm not trying to take advantage of you, Dalinar. I... She paused. Well, perhaps I am taking advantage of you just a little. But I'm not toying with you. This last year in particular, you've begun to be the person the others all claim that they are. Can't you see how that intriguing that makes you? I don't do it to be intriguing. If you did, it wouldn't work. She leaned towards him. Do you know why I picked Gavilar instead of you all those years ago? I didn't pick him because he would become king, Dalinar. Though that's what everyone says. I chose him because you frightened me. That intensity of yours. It scared your brother too, you know. He said nothing. It's still in there, she said. I can see it in your eyes, but you've wrapped armor around it. The glistening set of shard plates to contain it. That is part of what I find fascinating. He stopped looking at her. The palanquin bearers halted. This would not work, Navani, he said softly. Wouldn't it? she asked. He shook his head. I will not dishonor my brother's memory. He regarded her sternly, and she eventually nodded. So, I actually thought it was funny when you said that she chose Gavilar because he would be king earlier. Because that is a good assumption to make from what we know and what we get from Dalinar's POV. But in here, she does say that Dalinar, as a younger man, scared her. And that's why she didn't choose him. I mean, he was a warmongering violent Pirate. person yes and she was like uh i mean yes our uh, whole country tends to be like that but uh no no i don't want to marry someone like that and i think i think this is the moment that really cements to me that dalinar really did have a fucked up past that like we get told about it a lot from people that are less involved but hearing directly from Navani that Dalinar as a youth scared her to the point where she didn't feel safe to marry him, I think is the most telling of who Dalinar used to be. Yeah. They arrive at Dalinar's bunker, where Adolin is waiting for him. 
Talonar realizes that he'd been digging the ditch for hours, and Adolin asks to speak privately. Dalinar says it will have to wait a little longer, and Dalinar and Adolin introduces Dalinar to Danlin Morikotha. Turns out, things with Malasha didn't work out. Danlin had been in the camp for a day, and now Adolin is courting her. Uh, okay. Uh, Dalinar worried boy. about Adolin. This boy. He can't hold on to a girl for two days, can he? He is uh, not very good at this. Clearly. How does he get these girls to <laughs> like him? He's apparently very handsome. And he's the son of the uncle of the king. Son of the... So I he's mean, cousins he... with the king. He's cousins with the king and he's next in line to one of the princedoms. So all these girls just really want to be royalty. I think some of them at the very least. But then they realize how dumb this guy is, and he's like, okay, <laughs> nope, never mind, not worth it. Well, he's not very nice to them. <laughs> Clearly. He's always abandoning them to go do other things, so well, I, mean, I, mean, I don't blame them, really. He kind of has to. That's not entirely yeah, yeah, his no. fault. I don't think it's entirely his fault, but I do think that, like, I don't, I don't blame them for being like, this is not a relationship that could work. <laughs> I mean, you should know getting... You should know, getting into it, that it's like, okay, yeah, this guy kind of has other responsibilities. He can't be paying attention to me 24-7. So, um, yeah, maybe this isn't the best thing. Like, they should know that. I think the they big thing is that, that the Colins are so different from everyone else. The amount of stuff that Adolin does isn't what every High Prince child does. A lot of them just party. Like, he's... Dalinar has Adolin following the codes of war and doing all of these things that is very unusual for the, for the High Princes and for a Lethe society. So I do think Adolin is an outlier in that he's doing the right thing, but in a society that doesn't do the right thing. Yeah. Dalinar worried about Adolin. Eventually, he'd need to pick a wife, especially if Dalinar abdicated. Dalinar had spent three years courting his wife. Even if he couldn't remember her face, he remembered how he'd pursued her. Dalinar extends an olive branch to Danlin by asking her to scribe for him during his conversation with Yasna. Um, Dalinar arrives at his span reads where an attendant is waiting, and I'm just going to explain span reads here. Um, span reads are pens with gemstones in them, and when you turn the gemstone, it, they are linked to another pen somewhere else. And when the person with the other pen writes, your pen will float through the air and write on the, this side. So it's a way to send notes instantly? Yeah. But I think they have... there might be a slight delay. But yeah, but point... it's like, it's the only way that you can easily contact people from far away. Yes. Apparently. And... Yes. Except you have to know in advance that you want to do that so that both of your pens are synced up. Yeah, and like there's a setting on the pens that makes the other pen flash, which is essentially saying, hey, somebody wants to talk to you. So it's like. And each span read is directly linked to another. This is like low tech text messaging. Essentially. But something that you should be keeping in mind from all the things I've described to you is a lot of these weird technologies 
have to do with gemstones. Yeah. They always have gemstones involved yeah. somehow. I mean, they don't have electricity, so they use magic. Mm-hmm. There, yes. We'll talk about that more eventually. Uh, I'm sure we will. Daladar and Yasna exchange pleasantries. Daladar gives a code phrase that indicates that he didn't trust everyone listening. Yasna catches Dalinar up on her arrival in Carbrant and that she's seeking secrets in the Palaneum. Dalinar tells her what happened to Elokar during the Chasm Fiend hunt and tells her that Navani is back in the war camps. And Yasna says, send my mother my respect. Keep her at arm's length, uncle. She bites. <laughs> uh, not knowing that Navani is right there. And Navani's in the background and she's like, she clearly does not appreci- appreciate this statement. <laughs> Yasna says that she can't talk about her work over Spanreed, but that something is hidden in the Palaneum. Uh, Dalinar talks about how Yasna was a Varus Titalian. She explained it to him once. They were an order of scholars who tried to find the truth in the past. They wished to create unbiased factual accounts of what had happened in order to extrapolate what to do in the future. He wasn't clear on why they thought themselves different from conventional historians. Dalinar asks if she'll be returning soon, and she says that she cannot say. Then she asks him to describe the moment that he'd first met the Parshendi. Dalinar says that Gavilar and he had been exploring a forest when they discovered the Parshendi. He wished they'd never gone, then they could have never assassinated Gavilar. Yasna asked when Dalinar first saw a Parshendi's shardbearer, and he says it wasn't until after Gavilar's assassination. Then he starts to wonder if that was why Gavilar had wanted the treaty. Had Gavilar wanted to get out of the Parshendi where they'd found the shards. Because this is something that we've kind of talked about a couple times. Everybody keeps saying, hey, the shards are all in very specific places and we know where all of them are. But then Rock is like, no, you fucking don't. I can tell you that other smaller countries have shards as well. And they find these random people just out in the forest who have shards. Like, it's... It's very curious. It's just a culture thinking that they're bigger than everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, we have all of the super cool stuff in the world. And then other people are like, you're just, you're dumb. You are really dumb. I will say that there's so, you're on the, you are definitely right in what you're saying, but there is more significance to it. Well, yeah, I'm just kind of. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. Um, Way later. Uh. So he wonders if that's what Yasna was investigating, Gavilar's death. Elokar was driven by vengeance, and but Yasna was driven by questions. Yasna then asks what the very first question the Parshendi had asked them was. He says it was to see their maps, and Yasna asks if they'd mentioned the Voidbringers. Dalinar says that they hadn't, and then Yasna uses the span read to send a picture to them. And essentially, uh, the book goes through a couple clues to do this, but they're saying Shalon sent the picture. That Shalon use the span read to copy a drawing and then on the other side it it did it oh did she like trace the drawing with the pen that's a smart i don't think she traced it i think shalon is just a good enough draw like artist that she can just do it she can just replicate it maybe i think shalon has a photographic memory Uh, no i mean like well yeah shalon does have that but it's like was shalon using the pic the pen at that point? Yes. Or... Yeah, yeah. They they hand the pen to Shalon and Shalon draws it. Oh, okay. Yeah. For a second, I was like, wait, but how? 
What? Yeah, no, uh, Yasna's not tracing a drawing that Shalon did. She gives Shalon the pen to draw it. Okay. The picture resolves to a drawing of a chasm fiend. Yasna tells him that the book she got the picture from describes it as a drawing of a Voidbringer. The book was a copy of a text from before the Recreants, and the picture was even older. Some thought it was drawn only two or three generations after the Heralds departed. Yasna says that she isn't implying that the Chasm Fiends were Voidbringers, but she thought that the artist didn't know what a Voidbringer was, so she drew the most horrific thing she could think of. Uh, I'm going to read from the book for a minute here. I must go now, Yasna said via Dan... I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say that, but Yasna said. They, they say Yasna said via Danlin for everything, because Danlin is reading what Yasna's writing, but it's Yasna. Care for my brother in my absence, uncle. Yasna, Dalinar sent, choosing his words very carefully. Things are difficult here. The storm begins to blow unchecked, and the, buildings sh- and the building shakes and moans. You may soon hear news that, w- that shocks you. It would be very nice if you could return and lend your aid. He waited quietly for the reply, the span reed scratching. I should like to promise a date when I will come. Dalinar could almost hear Yasna's cool, calm, cool voice. But I cannot estimate when my research will be completed. This is very important, Yasna, Dalinar said. Please reconsider. Be assured, Uncle, that I am coming. Eventually. I just can't say when. Dalinar sighed. Note, Yasna wrote, that I am most eager to see a chasm fiend for myself. A dead one, Dalinar said. I have no intention of letting you repeat your brother's experience a a few weeks ago. Ah, Yasna sent back. Dear overprotective Dalinar, one of these years you will have to admit that your favored niece and nephew have grown up. I'll treat you as adults as long as you act the part, Dalinar said. Come speedily and we'll get you a dead chasm fiend. Take care. I love their relationship. I I think that they have a great a great relationship. Mm-hmm. It might be because I'm an uncle. I mean I'm an aunt. I have ten I have ten nieces and nephews, so Oh, I only have one niece. But like <laughs> I'm genuinely starting to consider if Part of my love for Dalinar and Yasna's relationship is because I'm an uncle as well. It might be. And I think that might be part of it. Anyways, uh, the Spanreed connection ends. He wondered if sending her a letter announcing his decision to step down would bring her back. Then he realized that he'd decided. Sometime between the ditch and now, he'd stopped thinking about it as an if and as a when. He realized it had been his conversation with Yasna. He was starting to act like Gavilar had. He wondered if what was happening to him had been a disease of the mind inherited from their parents. At some point, Adolin had left, but Navani remained. She asked him why he wanted Yasna to come back so badly. He told her it was inappropriate for them to be left alone, but she ignored him. And I'm going to read the end of the chapter. Talonar, Navani asked, are you going to answer me? Why is it you trust my daughter so much when others almost universally revile her? I consider their dis- disdain for her to be a recommendation, he said. She is a heretic. She refused to join any of the devotaries because she did not believe in their teachings. Rather than compromise for the sake of appearances, she has been honest and has refused to make professions that she does not believe. I find that a sign of honor. Navani snorted. You two are a pair of nails in the same doorframe. Stern, hard, and storming annoying to pull free. You should go now, Delinor said, nodding toward the hallway. He suddenly felt very exhausted. People will talk. Let them. We need to plan, Dalinar. You are the most important high prince in- Navani, he cut in. I'm going to abdicate in favor of Adolin. She blinked in surprise. I'm stepping down as soon as I can make the necessary arrangements. It will be a few days at most. Speaking the words felt odd, as if saying them made his decision real. Navani looked pained. Oh, Dalinar, she whispered. This is a terrible mistake. 
It is mine to make, and I must repeat my request. I have many things to think about, Navani, and I can't deal with you right now. He pointed at the doorway. Navani rolled her eyes, but left as requested. She shut the door behind her. That's it, Dalinar thought, letting out a long exhalation. I've made the decision. Too weary to remove his plate unassisted, he sank down onto the floor, resting his head back against the wall. He would tell Adolin of his decision in the morning, then announce it at a feast within the week. From there, he would return to Alethkar and his lands. It was over. The end of part two. Um, that's my big low. Uh, I think it's a huge low. I was heartbroken the first time I read that. Um, just the defeat and him going, it's over. And then I, the it was over. And then the end of part two, because at the end of every part, it literally says the end of part two at the bottom of the page. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very effective. Um, wow, Mango, we did it. Yeah, uh, we're not going to talk about the letter of this episode. We'll start next week with it. That'll lengthen the episode a little bit, but uh, we've already been going long enough. But I do want to go back over the letter. Um, we'll do that next week before the interludes. Um, how do you feel about that being where we leave off Dalinar for a part? Uh, I don't know. It's like he... I feel like... Maybe when he doesn't have to worry about being High Prince, he can put more focus on his visions, but at the same time, he doesn't have the power to do what the visions are telling him if he Mm -hmm. abdicates. And he says he has to go back to his lands in Alethkar. So he's leaving, and he won't even be around anyone else to unite them. Mm Mm-hmm. I have mixed feelings about this. I think it's upsetting. Yeah. Um I I think they definitely leave Dalinar off at a part here where you're like, oh oh no. Yeah. And I love the one two punch of Kaladin has a great time at the end of this part. <laughs> like he's having a party around a campfire with Bridgeford. I mean he's not having a great time, but he's having a considerably better time than he has been it's better um, than the end of part one yes and the kind of jump to the next chapter being Dalinar's and it just being not good I feel like we can't really quite yet judge just the weight of the mistake he's making <laughs> like we we don't understand that much yet but we know it's not gonna be anything good this is not going to end well. And we can tell. Yeah. Um, with that, let me look. Let me give you a live update on where we are in the book. Uh, if I open up my Kindle version, because it gives me a percentage. Um, we are 43% of the way through. Okay. Next week, we'll be, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, note, the letter, in, in full. And also, we will read the next set of interludes, which is, uh, which are Risen, Axes, and Zeth. Wait, what? 
the POVs for the interludes, this this next set of interludes mm-hmm. are Risen, Axes, and Zeth. So I don't know two of those names, but we know Zeth. Yes, we do. Let me guess, he's still a slave. Well, we'll find out next time on Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> um. Okay, well, I guess we're never doing any more of the podcast because Sean made that joke. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs> what? What? Wait, hang on a second. That's not fair. You can finish um, the series on your own. All right. Uh, Mango, I've kept you long enough. <laughs> uh, I do want to get a quick update from you. I think the end of a part is a good time to get a quick update on you from you. How are you feeling on, on the story so far? I feel like I... Am less lost than I was at the end of part one. Okay. Because at the end of part one, I was still like, I is anything happening? It feels like nothing's yeah. happening. And now I'm like, okay. Yeah. So not like tons of action, but lots of character building stuff is happening. Mm. So, I mean, that's happening. Mm. At least things are actually happening this time. Yes. It is very much epic fantasy, where it is very long, and there's a lot of, like, it's kind of light on the action in certain points. Yeah. Um, but, uh... It's like, <laughs> like the Fellowship of the Ring, where there's, like, basically yeah. no action until the very last part of the movie. Yes. Um, it is kind of like that. Uh, Except for like that one scene with the what what's their face, the ones that can see Frodo when he has the ring on. Ah, the ring rates. Yeah, those. Like that's yeah. the only other action part in the whole movie. Um, I will say now that we are done, and you've said a lot of things this episode, so you can't pinpoint what I'm talking about. Um. There's one thing you said during this episode that uh, is insanely important. I did say a lot of things in this episode. This is probably the most talkative I've ever been in an episode. I'm very glad for that because it means I can be very vague about what you said. Yeah. Uh, You said one thing in this episode where I muted my microphone. (laughs) Really? Yes, I muted my microphone when you said it. Anyways, Mango, where can people find you online? Uh, You can find me at Mango Asteroid on Twitch. I am almost to affiliate. I just have to stream a bunch more. So that's exciting. Where can people find you, Sean? You guys can follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore AFK. As for this show, you guys can... Follow this show on Twitter. It's at Speak Stormlight. Uh, we host the show on Anchor at anchor.fm slash speak dash the dash words. You guys can send us voice message on, messages on there, which is I think is really cool. Uh, Gmail, speak the words ASP at gmail.com to send us emails. Uh, the cover art was done by at Tyler Tylerims. Uh, next week, we'll be back with the interludes. Like I said, after that, we'll start part three and we'll uh, see Shalon. But um, what can I say about next week i'll i'll give you i'll give you two teases for next week before we leave um tease one 
you are going to uh, uh, meet a character that will appear in uh, a lot of books going forward. Cool. You're going to meet a very important character. Uh, and two, uh, Zeth's story is really going to start to pick up. Ooh. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure. I don't think I'm lying. I'm pretty sure that's something pretty big. I was about to make, to, that, yeah, was about to make to that one joke I always make about Zeth again, and I realized that's... I probably shouldn't, but... Um, <sighs> Man. I, I think... Uh, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm just gonna, cause, yeah, 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 some shit's gonna happen with Zeth in this next, uh, next chapter, so, um, nice. thank you guys all for listening, uh, for joining us on this adventure, we hit a pretty big milestone with this episode, passing part two, mm-hmm. 43%. Uh, the next big milestone really is 50%, because that'll happen before the end of, uh, part three. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let me guess. We'll part three, week. part three is probably the longest, right? Um, longest part. Let me let me look. Part three starts on page three hundred and seventy-two of my of my uh, ebook and ends on page five ninety-seven. Oh wait, no, you said there are five parts, right? There are yes. Okay. I think part three still might be the longest though. Okay. For some reason, I was thinking part three. There were only four parts, so part three was going to be really long, but no. Okay. No, no. Okay. So part three is 225 pages in my thing. Uh, I mean, that's a quarter of the book. Actually, yeah, it's only uh 20 pages longer than this part was, oh, apparently. Okay, well. So I do still think it's the longest, though. Yeah. Um, okay, well. But yes. As always, guys, don't forget life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. <laughs>